Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick, and this is episode number one. And actually, this is a prologue episode. If you know anything about the show so far, you probably know that this is primarily going to be an interview show. And I've got a great season of guests lined up for you. Some of the most interesting people in the auto and motorcycling world. We're talking about photojournalists, collectors, restorers, custom builders, professional race drivers, all kinds of cool people. It's been really exciting putting season one together, and I can't wait to share it with you. But today, what I want to do is I want to kind of take a deep dive into some automotive history. First, let's talk about the name of the show, Horsepower Heritage. What does that mean? Well, the more I learn about cars and motorcycles, the more I'm amazed by the technical progress and innovations that have happened. And I'm talking about a period of history over 300 years because none of this stuff happened overnight. It was incremental. There were some brilliant people who struggled to figure these things out to push forward, to advance technology, to make things faster, lighter, stronger, and even more beautiful. And when you look at the span of automotive history, it's pretty incredible, especially considering today you can get in your car and within about 30 seconds, conceivably, you could be doing 100 miles an hour in perfect safety and comfort. And we didn't get there overnight. And we take it for granted. We don't even think about it. That's incredible to me. But This show is going to tell the stories of people and their relationship to the automobile, to the motorcycle. You know, our wheels are pretty much the ultimate expression of personal freedom. Think about how important your car is to your own personal freedom. Okay, a little housekeeping before we get started. If you've got questions, comments, show ideas, people you'd like to see me interview, you can email me at horsepowerheritage at gmail.com. Tell me what you like, what you hate. I'm up for constructive criticism. Next, we have an Instagram page. It's at Horsepower Heritage. Give me a follow over there. A lot of news about the show is going to be shared primarily there. So you'll be able to catch previews of upcoming episodes. We'll have merch eventually, maybe even a contest or two. We'll see how that goes. The show also has a YouTube channel. Like and subscribe over there. You'll be able to see full episodes. And the show is shot with either three or four cameras on a studio set or on location but I'm really committed to being in person with my guests. Now, obviously, coronavirus has changed life as we know it for everyone, and there will be a Zoom episode from time to time, but I'm committed as much as possible to be in person with my guests, and it's just better that way. And finally, if you're listening to this right now, you've obviously found us on your favorite podcast app. Hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode, and don't forget to leave me a review. And one last request, if you enjoy the show, share it with your gearhead buddies. Okay. I want to take you back in history, and we're going to look at the long, slow road it took to get here. But first, we've got to go way back. Now, most of the early innovations that became the automobile happened predictably in Europe, mainly France and the UK. Germany, of course, played a part, some other countries. But Europe had the most developed road systems and economies in the world. So let's dive into some of these technical innovations in automotive history. But we have to start in the horse-drawn era. And probably the best place on earth to get a sense of this history is in Lisbon, Portugal, at the National Coach Museum. It houses an incredible collection of horse-drawn coaches that were used primarily by the Portuguese royal family and other nobility. And the earliest coach in the museum is circa 1619, and it was used by King Philip III of Spain, who at the time also ruled Portugal as Philip II. And when you look at Philip's coach, it is impressive. It's a big enclosed coach clad in studded black leather with a red velvet interior. 
Now the coachwork itself is isolated from the chassis. It's suspended by these huge leather straps because the chassis itself has no suspension. And as a car guy, you immediately notice the technical stuff like the wheel hubs, the axles, crude nuts and bolts, carriage bolts, of course. That's where the name comes from. And it's not unlike early cars built 150 years later. Now, when you look at other coaches in the museum, you begin to notice a progression and you kind of realize that Phillips coach was crude in many ways. But as time went on and the coach building art was refined, you begin to see this incredible detail like leaf springs and a more sophisticated overall construction. And then there are these incredibly ornate parade coaches that are covered in gold leaf. Even the wheels are in gold leaf. And they're decorated from top to bottom with intricate wood carvings and even statues riding on the front end just behind the drawbar where the horses would be harnessed. All of the ironwork on these coaches was handmade by skilled blacksmiths, and every inch is obviously handmade, but beautifully so. Think about being a tradesman like this in the 1700s. You've worked five hours on an intricate carving, or you've been blacksmithing all day. You don't want to make a mistake because you can't just throw it in the reject pile and start over quickly. So their attention to detail was at a very high level. And you can really appreciate it when you visit the National Coach Museum. If you're a car guy and you're ever in Lisbon, you've got to check it out. And you can just imagine these coaches underway with a team of horses. And it would be every bit as impressive as seeing a Type 35 Bugatti or a Duesenberg going down the road. So coachwork technology continued to advance. But let's fast forward to 1681. A Flemish Jesuit missionary named Ferdinand Verbiest who was a brilliant astronomer, mathematician, spoke six languages, found himself in the court of Chinese Emperor Kang Shi. And he became the court astronomer. And in that year, he designed a steam-powered toy car for Kang Shi. There's no evidence that the toy car was ever built. But if you look at the drawing, the design consisted of a wooden plank as a chassis with four wheels and crude axles. On the chassis was a firebox. Above the firebox was a metal sphere containing water. And the sphere had a vent pipe. And the vent pipe was aimed at a horizontally mounted turbine paddle wheel that turned a shaft with intermeshing gears. And that turned the wheels. Now there's no evidence that it was ever actually built. Again, all we have are drawings. But in principle, it would work. It would be almost 90 years before a true self-propelled full-scale vehicle would be field tested. In 1769, a French army captain named Nicolas Cugnot built a three-wheeled steam-powered gun tractor that was intended to haul cannon. You can imagine how many horses it would take to field heavy cannon in those days. And if Cugnot's gun tractor proved effective, it could change the game for the French army, give them a tremendous advantage on the field of battle. I'll describe it. Just imagine a giant kettle made of copper hanging way out in front of a tricycle wagon. The wagon itself was made of heavy oak timbers and iron strap, and it weighed three tons. And the idea was to sling the cannon under the chassis, which would also counterbalance the kettle hanging way out front. Now the kettle was an integrated copper firebox and steam boiler, which would power two pistons connected to a pawl and ratchet mechanism on either side of the front wheel. Just imagine a socket wrench, how you can only turn it one way at a time. That's the kind of mechanism that Cugnot used to turn the front wheel. Now the pistons and ratchet mechanism were arranged so that their stroke would be opposite. One piston would be up, the other would be down. 
the wheel would always be turning. And during this cycle, there would be a momentary freewheeling until the next ratchet engaged. The Cuno tractor had tiller steering. Well, not quite tiller steering. It took multiple revolutions of the tiller to turn the wheel to lock. And actually, the Cuno tractor was probably best steered from a standstill because the steering gear was so slow, it would have been hard to maintain directional control underway. And in fact, Cuno himself ran his contraption into a stone wall during testing, which some people count as the world's first car crash. Now, the Cuno tractor could only make two and a half miles per hour, and its endurance was just 15 minutes before it either ran out of water or you would need to feed the fire. The French army, of course, never used it in battle. It never went beyond the testing phase, but key concepts were established. The original Cuno tractor is on display at the Museum of Arts and Trades in Paris, and it's truly a static display because the tractor is held up with steel beams in order to preserve it and keep it from collapsing. However, the Tampa Bay Automobile Museum has a full-scale working replica of Cuno's tractor, and there's a video of it underway on YouTube, and I'll post a link for that in the show notes, as well as for a few other topics we're going to talk about today. I'm going to take a little detour right now. You know, the EV industry has done a pretty good job of reminding consumers that electric vehicles are not new, and I think that's smart because there are a few things that people are concerned about with electric vehicles. Number one, reliability. Number two, longevity, and number three, range. But the first crude electric car was built by a Scotsman named Robert Anderson in 1832. It was basically an electric carriage. The big problem with Anderson's carriage, though, is that rechargeable battery technology hadn't been invented yet. However, the first practical electric carriage came in 1881, after the invention of lead-acid batteries. And then in the 1890s, an English inventor named Thomas Parker, who's been described as the Thomas Edison of England, developed a practical electric car. Basically, it was a true horseless carriage. And Parker was an industrialist. The car was just a side project for him. He had a lot of different businesses, including building the electrical grid in areas of London and other cities. And by the way, if you think electric scooters and bicycles are new, not so. They were being used in Paris in the 1880s. And that brings us to steam power. Steam took a dramatic leap in the 1770s when James Watt, who was another Scotsman, found ways to improve the efficiency of existing steam engines, which had been around for at least 60 years. The steam engine became commonplace in mines and factories, and it was steam that powered the Industrial Revolution. But steam power wasn't applied to vehicles in a significant way until the 1830s, when there were a number of companies operating steam-powered omnibuses in England. So just picture an enormous enclosed wagon with a steam boiler on board, filled with passengers and their luggage. The steam omnibuses operated between cities in England. However, unfortunately, some legislation came along that really prevented them from making a greater impact. First was the Turnpike Act. The Turnpike Acts were intended to fund road building all over England, a toll road system. But they also basically disincentivized any steam-powered road vehicles. And it certainly helped the horse-drawn bus companies and the railroads. It got even worse. Other legislation basically barred self-propelled vehicles in Britain. For example, the Locomotive Act put strict speed limits on all, quote, road-going locomotives. So any self-propelled vehicle was limited to 5 miles an hour in towns and cities and 10 miles an hour in the country. If that wasn't enough, another Locomotive Act was passed in 1865. This one was nicknamed the Red Flag Act because it required a man with a red flag to walk ahead of any self-propelled vehicle. It also gave local government the authority to decide when they would permit steam-powered vehicles on the road at any time. The effect of these laws was basically to make self-propelled road vehicles unprofitable for commercial use. And at this point in history, privately owned horseless carriages were an expensive proposition. 
However, there were numerous legitimate safety concerns. For example, steam buses were heavy, ponderous. They could damage roads and block traffic. They could run over horses and people. The public was legitimately concerned. You could argue that these laws basically stalled the development of the automobile for several decades. And that's partially true, but steam boilers were still too large for a practical, personal vehicle. What would really change that was the petroleum industry, which began to grow dramatically in the 1850s. Crude oil and tar that come to the surface have been used by humans for thousands of years, but the trick was in the refinement process, and that's what really took off in the 1850s. Also, the power of the steam engine allowed wells to be drilled rather than dug by hand. And so multiple discoveries and technologies converged, and the oil business was soon booming around the world. The next big breakthrough was the internal combustion engine, and we'll talk about that next. Now, an external combustion engine is where a working fluid is contained in a vessel and then heated by combustion from an external source. Early steam engines are the prime example. Think back to Cuno's tractor with its kettle of water heated by the firebox below. But the internal combustion engine is one in which the heating happens inside a chamber. And for this to happen efficiently, we need a sealed chamber and a piston. We need fuel, we need oxygen, and we need an ignition source. And the piston has to seal tightly against the cylinder but still move freely, which means we need a good lubricant. And finally, we need a way to cool the machine or it won't run for very long. Many principles and mechanisms of steam engines were applied to early internal combustion engines. One type was the vacuum engine, and here's how it worked. A flame was directed inside a cylinder, and the heated air pushed the piston to the other end. At the end of the stroke, the piston was cooled by water circulating around it, and that caused a drop in pressure inside the cylinder, or a partial vacuum. At that point, the atmospheric pressure on the crank side of the piston was greater, which then pushed the piston back to its starting point. Remember, we're talking about an open crankcase. One early vacuum engine had a displacement of almost 9 liters, but only developed 4 horsepower. It was enough to power a carriage and later a boat, but it was a bit of a technological dead end as a propulsion system. But we have to remember that propulsion was not the focus of these engines in the first place. The goal was to develop and produce a reliable and efficient industrial engine. These were single-speed engines with no throttling capability. So decades of experimentation through the mid-19th century moved the needle in fits and starts. And one of the men trying to make the next breakthrough was a German engineer named Nicholas Otto, O-T-T-O. He was part owner of the largest stationary engine manufacturer in the world. And for 15 years, he'd been designing and testing engines of various types. In 1862, he'd constructed a four-stroke stationary engine that self-destructed within moments of running for the first time. Four-stroke engine. What are the four strokes? We know them well. Intake, compression, power, and exhaust. It's one of the first things you learn about engines if you're a car guy. So Otto had one of the key design elements of the future of internal combustion, but his machine blew itself up. Now we can assume that he was undeterred. After all, he'd been at it for a long time, but he was clearly stuck. The game changer, though, was probably the arrival of two new employees, Gottlieb Daimler and Wilhelm Maybach. Their expertise and formal education helped push the four-stroke engine development forward, and ultimately, a successful auto engine was produced in 1876. It was a triumph, but Daimler and Otto didn't have the same ambitions. Otto was focused on industrial power, while Daimler wanted to build a small, variable speed engine that could power vehicles, and Maybach felt the same. The three men parted ways in 1880, but not before Daimler had found a way to use the four-stroke engine design for his own purposes. Because Otto held a patent on the four-stroke engine, 
Daimler was worried he would be shut out of that technology. So he hired a lawyer, and the lawyer discovered an earlier patent in France for a four-stroke engine. Daimler then went to court and had Otto's patent overturned on the grounds it was not an original concept. That opened the door for Daimler to move ahead with his own designs, using a different ignition system called a hot tube ignition, and then later a Bosch electric spark system. For fuel, they used mineral spirits, which were by that time a common drugstore item used as a cleanser. And they developed a carburetor to improve the fuel-air mixture and delivery. Their engine was installed in a crude motorcycle in 1885, making it the first internal combustion-powered motor vehicle. The motorcycle itself looks like a hobby horse with wooden wheels and a very uncomfortable saddle. It had no suspension, and it looks like it was no fun to ride. But just 60 miles from Daimler's workshop, yet another young mechanical engineer was on the verge of a singular achievement. His name was Carl Benz. And at 41 years old, he had built the world's first automobile. He called it the Patent Motorwagen. Here are the details. Three wheels, tiller steering, a 900cc, one horsepower, flat, single-cylinder motor. The counterweighted crank was connected to a flywheel, which was in turn linked to a pair of bevel gears oriented 90 degrees from each other. And that transferred power down a shaft, which turned a drum. The drum turned a leather belt, which turned the axles, which turned a shaft connected to chains that finally transmitted power to both rear wheels. Benz also used a carburetor, a spark ignition system, and an evaporative water cooling system. Carl Benz had one problem, though. He was trapped in a sort of R&D purgatory, and he really hadn't given much thought to marketing or sales. He hesitated to actually use the Motorwagen and kept tinkering. Put yourself in his position. Keep in mind that the public was not necessarily open to this new kind of machine. The road system wasn't great. The infrastructure for fuel, parts, and service didn't exist. And certainly the machine would be expensive. Benz probably thought the marketplace was very limited and people were going to be skeptical. He was at a low point and he genuinely feared the whole thing would be a disaster. To make matters worse, the seed money for this whole thing had come from his wife, Bertha. Her family was wealthy and she had spent her entire dowry supporting Carl's efforts. The Benz family had sunk its fortunes in the project and without a commercial success, it might well ruin them. So Bertha was frustrated, but she believed in her husband. So she did the only thing she could do. Without Carl's knowledge, on the morning of August 5th, 1888, Bertha Benz drove the Patton Motorwagen 60 miles from their home in Mannheim to her family's home in Fortsheim. She even took their two young boys with her. Along the way, they had mechanical problems. They had to push the Motorwagen up several hills because it wasn't geared quite right. The wooden brake shoes wore away quickly, and almost on the spot, Bertha Benz decided to replace them with tough leather hide, proving she had a mechanical mind of her own. At one point, they stopped at a blacksmith for repairs. It was a true adventure, and in the process, Bertha Benz became the world's first automotive test driver. On her return to Mannheim, Carl Benz found new hope. Finally, it was a real car. Nearly 300 years after King Philip's royal carriage and 120 years after Nicholas Cugno's gun tractor, the dream of self-propelled transportation was a reality. In 1888, the Benz Patton Motorwagen could reach 10 miles per hour. By 1910, a Benz race car called the Blitzen Benz set a world speed record of 141.9 miles per hour. And the record stood for 10 years. Thank you. 
And that brings us to the dawn of the 20th century. And we'll have to leave it there for now, but I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. I'm Maurice Merrick, and I'll be right here for the next episode of Horsepower Heritage. Thanks for listening.